think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. As you can tell from the music, it is time to think, 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 think. Yes, this matters, just in case you have no idea what is going on. Hi, everybody. It's Michael. I'm back to challenge your worldview and try to help you put one together that is Christian, which means I have come to you to tell you that the end is nigh. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. We are... Excuse me. We are breaking out our sandwich boards, finding a street corner, because we are talking about our next little section. So... If you have not been following along, pause, go back, and go grab the first two episodes in this little series. It will make more sense to you. If you have been following along, then you know that what we have covered thus far is that God is our creator. You, me, the people you see on the side of the road, everybody. He is the creator. Therefore, we are dependent beings. When we talk about being dependent beings, we mean all of humanity, not just his redeemed children. But even those rebel sinners shaking their fists are dependent upon God's provision for their continuance, for their sustenance. You can see this in the dichotomy of the family line of Seth and the family line of Abel, both preserved by God. Now, Today will be a little bit of a a double-up if you have been following along with our walk-through theology with Lou on uh, Wednesdays when we get that posted because we're going back to the flood. Hence the reason for the need of the sandwich board. The reason we're going back to the flood is because it's simple. It's the next section in, in line here. So... We can't just ignore it and then hope that this all makes sense. It's it's in here. We got to cover it. And we got to go through it all. So, if you don't want to listen to all this, well, then I'm sorry. Just wait till next week and say I already know everything about the flood. But in regards to worldview, this matters because we are created by God, and because we are therefore dependent beings, we have no independent strength or independent function or independent sustenance, then we are dependent upon God for our eternal destinies. And what we mean by that is God is Savior and judge. That is actually what gets demonstrated here in the flood narrative. I'm going to try to keep using the fancy technical term narrative here because I, like everybody else on the planet seemingly, defaults to the term story. It's a Bible story. And I know we don't mean anything nefarious or evil when we say that, but it's not a story. It's an account of what actually happened given, in this case, given by God to Moses to teach his children. So, as we've covered before, excuse me, we will cover again. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. This is Genesis 6, by the way, if you're not keeping up. And daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. All right, a couple of notes. Um, For starters, there is the idea that the Sons of God and the daughters of men. Sons of God are fallen angels, demonic things, and the daughters of men are just that, daughters of men. I get where it comes from. I'm not buying it. I think you're seeing the dichotomy of the family line of Seth here intermingling with the family line of Abel as archetypes. (coughs) Remember, there are other sons and daughters, but there are still 
types and shadows at work here. So I think you've got the godly and the ungodly mixing and mingling because we started with technically the godly, the redeemed, Adam and Eve. So everybody else has to reject that in order to get to the ungodly category. So they are intermingling. Man is spreading, therefore sin is spreading. Second note, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. That does not mean that you get to 120 and God kills you. So I know like th- this was a big problem a couple of years ago for folks. There was this French woman who was like 126 years old. Like, oh, see, it proves the Bible's not real because she, she made it past 120. Abraham's going to make it past 120 in like 10 to 15 chapters. So all right, can, can we actually have a brain here for a minute and think this through? No. The 120 years is the time for Noah building the ark. And before you're like, man, he's a slow, terrible builder. Okay. He's building a boat by hand with the help of three sons and whatever else technology he's got. I, I don't know if it took him exactly 120 years. I don't know if he started building like on Tuesday or after this thing from God came down to him. I don't know if it was an off and on project. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell me, but we know that the judgment is coming. Part of the reason for this is you also see later on in scripture, the reminders you get from Peter, how people were giving in marriage and being married and going to parties and all of that because they've they convinced themselves of what? The judgment's not coming. Um, yes, yes, it is. Therefore, repent and believe. So the law, the Lord saw the Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, sin is not an action only. It originates in the heart and mind. What you think, what you desire. This is the formula we always use. The reason why the gospel message is so important, it is the only thing that changes the hearts and minds of men. If I want to change what you do, I have to first change how you think about things. In order to change how you think about things, I have to first change what you want. This is the work that the gospel does. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. Is It changes what you want from the lusts of your flesh and the lusts of your eyes to the peace, security, and harmony with God. Once that is changed, the way you think in this world is different. Once that is changed, the things that you do, excuse me, the things that you do will be different. Hey, take a second. I got something on my glasses and it's just bugging me that I'm looking at this little spot. So, This is what's going on here with mankind. It's not just that they're doing bad things. They are thinking bad things, devising vain thoughts. They are not doing bad. They are bad. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Maybe I shouldn't say they're not not doing bad, therefore they are bad. They are doing bad because they are bad. So the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Anthropomorphic language. We are describing God's actions in terminology we can understand. God does not repent of making man. God does not change his mind. He is not a man or a son of man that he might change his mind. He is instead being described by fallen, sinful finite creatures trying to understand the infinite, eternal, holy God. We fail quite well at this. Excuse me. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I won't sing the, uh, the Tennessee Williams thing again like I did on Wednesday. You'll just have to go back and listen to Wednesday's episode if you want to figure out what's going on. So you get the generations of Noah, you get the reminder of the corruption on the earth, and then you get the command from God. 
The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now stop. This is important for your Christian worldview. This is why we're doing this. This is the case because of what has come before. God, as the creator, is responsible for the creation. does not mean he's responsible for the actions of the sinful people within the creation, but he is responsible for the creation. He has right and authority over it. If he deems it too evil to continue, he has the right to do so. Secondly, as dependent beings needing the provision and benevolence of God just to continue to breathe and exist, we have less than zero right to tell God, I don't think that was very nice of you to kill all of those people. God is a great big sky meanie who is doing bad things, and I don't like it. Shut up. You don't get to make that determination. You are a dependent being. Therefore, he has the authority, privilege, and right of being the judge. Now, notice what we have clarified thus far. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Who gets included in that? Just stop and think on that for a second. The answer is everyone. Everyone gets included in that. But Noah found favor, the, uh, the term there. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Just as God is the rightful judge because he is the creator and the sustainer and we are dependent, he is the rightful savior. He has the right to save whom he wishes. And I know this is going to bug a lot of people. I don't care. God is not obligated to save anyone. In fact, justice demands that he save no one. Hence the crucifixion. The penalty must be pl- must be paid. Almost said played. The penalty must be paid. Christ bears the penalty to satisfy the wrath of God. Big fancy theological term of the day: propitiation. Therefore, God's mercy can be extended to those whose penalties have been paid. His spirit can be imparted because they are declared righteous, and they will then work cooperatively is the word I want. They will work cooperatively, hand-in-hand with the Holy Spirit, moving forward in sanctification until the day God brings them home, ushers them into his eternal kingdom, in which case they are then glorified. This is your ordo salutis. If you want more on this, Lou and I did a whole episode. Go back and dig through it. It will do you good. This matters, though. He is not obligated to save anyone. In fact... We would be able to make a very clear-cut case that God should not save anyone. That is the reason we say he is judge and savior. Excuse me. He is the one who handles these things. Now, you can continue on chapter 7, the flood hits. It's bad. Again, reminders, this is not just rain. Uh, Noah was 600 years, old when the flood, 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife's sons were with him. Uh, entered the ark because of the water of the flood. So, hang on, where is it? Here it is. The flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Uh, You know what? I'm in the wrong chapter, aren't I? Yep, hang on, there it is. No? Yeah. I marked it, and then I lost my mark. Why can't I find what I'm looking for? Arrgh. 
I can't find it anywhere. Don't you love when your brain just doesn't want to cooperate? I've marked something and it's not there because I would love to read it to you and I can't read it to you if I can't actually find it. So anyway, while I'm actually looking for it, there we go, because I've got the wrong mark. Here it is. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was in the right spot. should have trusted my own marks. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Huh. I had to find it. It's uh, 7 and 12. It was 11 and 12 of chapter 7. For some reason, my brain had it in the bottom, and that was the wrong mark. So... Why does this matter? It's not just it rained for a little while and it just kept raining and then the water built up. The earth was ripped in half. It was torn open. You're talking about tectonic plate shifts. You're talking about volcanic eruptions. You're talking about darkness and lightning and thunder and lava and you name it. And it's Why hasn't Hollywood made this movie? I mean, seriously, we got that. I didn't even watch all of it. It was just so bad. I, that garbage Darren Aronofsky film about Noah, about Noah, some weird environmentalist and the Nephilim or rock people. And uh, why can't we just tell a good story and use our awesome budgets that we can do with the special effects and actually tell the story rightly and show salvation? Uh, I know why. Because the people with all the money to do all that are the ones under judgment. They don't want to talk about salvation. That would be why. So anyway. Flood subsides. God remembers Noah and all the beasts. Again, anthropomorphic language. God did not forget them, but he remembers them as a way of saying that God has not forsaken them. God has not forgotten his plan. He has not forgotten his redemption. He is bringing about all that he has promised. Now, excuse me. <coughs> excuse me again. My, my throat does not wish to cooperate. With all of this, we get the same ideas, the same problem from beginning to end. So it came about, God spoke, said, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out every living thing. So Noah went out. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird moving, everything that lives on the earth went out by, fe- by their families from the ark. Noah built an altar. The Lord took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Again, God's not so angry that Noah has to offer a scent so that God will be calmed down. This isn't like some weird Hulk movie or anything like that. Once again, anthropomorphic language. God is pleased with Noah offering the correct offering, Allah Abel, and he is therefore entering into covenant. I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of the man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Catch that. This is why God has the right to judge. We are post-flood. Everybody who was going to be judged in the flood has been judged. It's been a tough year for Noah and family, but they have made it through by the grace of God. So everyone that will be judged has been judged. The the only ones who are left are the ones who have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Yes, those little, beautiful, lovely little creatures that you live in your house that you call your children are sinners in need of the grace of God, every single one of them. Now that matters because if we do not recognize that, we will not formulate a worldview rightly. We won't. We will formulate it incorrectly because we will borrow from the people who are under judgment and seek to actually create a system like theirs. And the reason this matters is because, look, I was born in 1981. I grew up in Western civilization 
in the time of the self-esteem movement. For crying out loud, I don't even like the song, and to this day I can still sing The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. Do you know why that is? Because for my kindergarten graduation, they taught us that song so we could perform it for our parents. Weren't we so cute? And our little gowns and our little caps. I still have the stuffed animal. That, that I do appreciate. But I can, I mean, I can still say, I believe the children are future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride and make it easier. Wait a minute, Christian. Do you want to instill a sense of pride in your children? Recognizing that Proverbs describes pride as sin, hubris, a usurpation of God and his authority and place in this universe. We want to give that to our children? No! No, 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 no. We want our children to run as far away from that as humanly possible. We don't want them to endorse this behavior. We want them to run from this behavior. This is what the self-esteem movement of the la- of really the birthing of postmodernism in the 80s and 90s has brought us, an anti-biblical worldview. Christian, do you want to war against it? Understand rightly our starting points that God has created. We are dependent upon him, and therefore he has the right to judge sin. There's something even deeper than that. Because did you notice we've kind of glossed over something? Have you had a Levitical law given yet? I mean, in our walkthrough. I mean, we're only at Genesis 8. I mean, I guess technically you could say we're at Genesis 9, where God covenants with Noah and, and gives him the animals and all of that. But have you had a Levitical law given at this point? The answer is no. Now, do we have some sort of instruction? Yes. We had God sacrifice the animal to cover Adam and Eve's sin. We had, obviously, Adam and Eve passing that knowledge on to their children as Abel knew, knew enough to offer that sacrifice. We saw Noah rightly offering that sacrifice at the end of chapter 8. So there is knowledge. There is instruction. But is it is it a codified law by which human beings are held to account? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. It's the law written on your heart, the way Romans would describe it. It is the law that you innately know, right from wrong, up from down, left from right. You have to reject that in order to willfully go on sinning. Now, you may not know the finer points without instruction about what sacrifices to offer, how to handle things, but human society almost universally recognizes, you know what? I shouldn't, I shouldn't kill you, I shouldn't take your stuff, and I shouldn't try to sleep with your wife. And I would appreciate it if you didn't try to kill me, you didn't try to take my stuff, and you didn't try to sleep with my wife. Like, that just kind of, you know, goes in line with everything. We just assume these things to be true because we already innately know them to be true. That is the law. Now, I remind you of that because God, if all of what we have said about him is true, spoiler alert, it is, if all that is true, then he has the right to judge by the standard he has created, not the standard we would prefer. This is the lie of the secular worldview. This is the lie of the modern world in action. If you would like to refute the worldview, you have to understand what it gets wrong. And what it gets wrong is the autonomy and sovereignty of the self, what I think is it Freud would describe as the id. If it's not Freud, then pick your favorite pop psychologist or psychiatrist. The the desire of the human heart, the the swelling of self, the self affirmation as I as I attain to my self actualizations. I mean, 
Yeah, we, I grew up on this garbage. This is why we have participation trophies, because if the children lose, they'll feel bad. Look, I coached four- and five-year-old basketball for a season before I moved. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Those kids are awesome. Give me the four- and five-year-olds any day. I coached three-year-old t-ball. That was way more fun than four years of varsity high school. But in those four- and five-year-old games, you know what we never used? Never used a scoreboard, ever. Not even once. I mean, we, they're not even on a 10-foot goal because none of them can get it into a 10-foot goal. So we have a little attachment that drops the goal down to like eight and a half, eight feet or something like that. And I had a, I, my son was on the team, and he was four, and he still couldn't reach the eight-foot goal. That's how little some of these kids were. And he wasn't even the smallest kid out there. It, it was interesting. Now, there's parents standing on the court. I have a coach standing at the other end, one of my assistants, helping me out, one of the guys in my church, and, and I'm on one end. We're literally standing under the basket trying to direct traffic. Like, if the kids just pick it up and don't dribble, we call them on it and try to just get them to try to do some basketball stuff. But, I mean, all of that to say, this is not basketball. This is just teaching them how to play, how to work together, and how to enjoy. The scoreboard is never turned on. Nobody even knows what the score is. It's not lit up. Parents aren't keeping track. Those kids knew at the end of every game who won. Every single time. Why? Because they were keeping track. Why? Because they're doing it. If I'm going to play a game, you know what I want to do? I want to win, baby. I want to win. Now, the world tries to tell you, oh, that's terrible. They'll all get a trophy because they're all winners. No, 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 no. Children innately know that when we compete in, in something against each other, somebody wins and somebody loses. That's how the world works. Conversely, when we engage in moral living, either with or against God's standard, somebody's winning and somebody's losing. That's just how the world works. So that's important because this is the vapidity, this is the empty place that you should be attacking in the worldview, is looking at it and saying, no, you're not holding to an objective standard. And you've seen this in debates and things. If you pay attention, you look at somebody and go, well, why is rape wrong? Well, because society has determined that rape is a bad thing. Well, what happens when society determines that rape is not a bad thing? I got really bad news for you. You're going to be getting there in about the next 10 years at most, I think, because societies have almost universally determined that, you know, pedophilia is not good. You know what you're starting to see now? You're starting to see societies determined that, oh, no, no, that's not so bad. It's not such a big deal. We're not that worried about it. <sighs> In other words, our objective standards are running up against the world's shifting morality. And why can't the world have an objective morality? Because they, can, they don't want anything that might boomerang back on them and condemn themselves. They are, as Romans, one's put, Romans 1 puts it, without excuse. But they are seeking to soothe their conscience. Best way to soothe their conscience? Get rid of the objective standard. Get rid of the fact that God will judge according to his objective standard. This is why you see the pagans when they talk. Um, Lou and I will talk about this tomorrow. We're gonna we're gonna do a little discussion on how salvation actually works, as opposed to what you know, Ibram X. Kendi thinks. When you see uh, guys like Don Lemon on CNN explaining, "Well, that's not how God does it." What they're trying to do is soothe the conscience because they have to, in order to remove the concept of judgment, they also have to remove the concept of salvation. They have to change it. They have to make it something that is cultural in nature. Welcome to liberalism in Christianity, moving the gospel message from the heights of heaven to the dregs of earth, moving salvation from something that is attained by the work of God in the submission of humanity to becoming something that is attained by man through his work realized in the here and now. See, 
That's the worldview war, is the constant dragging of our vision down, the constant forgetting that we are created by God. We are dependent upon him, and he has right as savior and judge over us. Christian, please, you have to continue to think of yourself as a redeemed sinner in this world, because that's what you are. Um, we dropped this in Sunday school the other day. There are fancy Latin of the day, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified, yet sinning. You are a sinner saved by grace, walking in sanctification. Are you perfect? No. Do you strive to be? Yes. Will you succeed? Not in this life. But you will in the life to come because God is good and that is what he has promised. And as the Savior, he has the right to redeem you in such a way. And as judge, he has the right to uphold the standard by which your sanctification and holiness is measured. And keep in mind, the reason he has the right to uphold that standard is because he is that standard. He does not come up with it. He is it. It exists because he exists. No other reason. So... As we build our our blocks that we will eventually begin to walk out upon, God is the creator. Because he is the creator and you are not, that makes you the creation, which means you are dependent upon him. And because God is now the standard that by which we judge, because he is creator and we are dependent, he has the right as savior and judge in this world. And we must think rightly in accordance with his standard as revealed to us in his word. So... Continuing forward, you're going to want to read, um, let me just think about this, probably the next three chapters of Genesis, and then we're going to start having some hops and skips and jumps as we uh, as we walk through. We'll take it in bigger chunks as we go. So one more small section as we complete primeval history, and then once we enter into patriarchal history, we'll look at it in bigger chunks. But this matters, walking through Scripture and learning how to formulate a worldview based on Scripture. You want a Bible study for your kids? It's like, I want to read them the Bible, but I don't know what to do. Do this! Read them the simple stories. See, I did it right there. See, see, I told you I was going to do it. Read them the narratives and explain why it matters. And if you don't know why it matters, then listen to this and then read it to your children and then take all the credit. I, will, I won't even be mad at you about it. I won't even be upset. Take all the credit. They will think you're brilliant and a wonderful theologian, and it'll be awesome, and your kids will be better for it, and your soul will be better for it. So what have we learned today, children? We have learned... God both kills and makes alive. He is judge and he is savior. We only stand as we stand in God. Remember, his standards, not ours. And our hope in this world is grounded in God. Not our works, not our brilliance, but God and God alone. So, questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com or you can fill out the contact form on the website, practicaltheologyministries.com. Go there, there's resources. You can get the book on the Sermon on the Mount that I wrote. I think it's mostly brilliant, but that's only because it's mostly me. <laughs> kidding, kidding. You can get that. You can get the reading plan with some commentary to help you keep up so you can read through your Bible in a year if you'd like to get a little bit of a jump start on that or pick up for them anywhere. It'll be good for you. It's worthwhile. Um, check for your downloads. Lou and I should be gathering tomorrow of Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. Ha 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 ha. To discuss soteriology, Cameron and I will be back on Thursday to look at world, not worldview, but look at the world's current events through a biblical lens. Hopefully this is helpful. The goal of everything that we're doing here is to try to get you guys on the right track because this world is not a pleasant place for the believer and I don't think it's going to get any better. But by the grace of God, we persevere, we bear up, and we are strengthened in our faith because of his great mercy and love. And if we can give you some tools to make that a reality for you and your family, then thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are pleased to do it. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.